Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm Avery Martin, co-host and digital media strategist. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. But don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Jen Curran McCulloch, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at Colorado State University and Director of the Serious Illness and End-of-Life Narratives Lab. Jen, we're delighted to see you. Thank you for having me here. Excited to be here. We look forward to it. We're going to spend some time getting to know you as we were just chatting about, both as a scholar and as a, as a person, a human being. And so, and we'll probably bounce back and forth between those, those domains. We're going to start with, with campus life and your scholarship. This is a research podcast after all. Right. And so, you know, our opening question is, is to invite you to tell us and, of course, our audience a bit about what, what are some of the big problems that you and your team and colleagues pursue. Yes. Well, we look a lot at what I would call disenfranchised grief and loss. Okay. Um, and I think this world kind of started, I, you know, I'm Dr. Jen, but I really just go by Jen. I am an oncology and palliative care social worker for 20 years before deciding to go back to get my PhD. And so I think a, a lot of my work is informed by that and the people that I met and trying to figure out really how do they cope with this challenging situation that they're in that maybe they've been something similar, but most often they've had uh, not had that experience themselves. So maybe it's a life-limiting illness like cancer mm. or Parkinson's disease, or maybe they have um, lost a companion animal like mm. their cat or their dog that is really significant in their life. And so we want to know kind of how they do wrestle with this internally, but also with other people or what resources they gather to really see if there are any patterns or ways that they're coping with this grief. And by disenfranchised, I guess I should spell that I out. Was about so grief, we think back maybe like in the 1980s when people were first dying or of AIDS and it became really big in our community and they were experiencing this isolated within themselves or within their small support networks, um, maybe family, maybe not family involved. Um, And so this experience of grief and loss is disenfranchised and meaning that they're they're really kind of having to cope with it on their own, Mm -hmm. but not really having that social sanctioned aspect of their death. And so some deaths like cancer can be something that we talk about socially, but still there are oftentimes people don't know what to say or don't know what to do. And so trying to figure out ways to also open dialogues and make it so it's not something that's so closed off to talk about death and dying. As you may know, we are a death phobic society. Right. It is something we can't, none of us can get a pass on. Indeed. We all do need to go there. And so it's really how to help it become as well more a part of the everyday, not everyday dialogue, but more socially acceptable to talk about. And then you've hit on the central theme for me as I think about what you do is that, that this, this is something that will inevitably touch all of us. I often think about people who work in oncology or mm-hmm. palliative care as, as having a passion for something that is not easy to do. A, a calling might be the kind of language we, mm-hmm. we think about. And I'm I'm really curious to hear how you got started in this domain. It's an area that has touched my family, certainly. I've, I've siblings died from cancer before oh. they got to 40, as a for instance, oh, wow. right? So, 
we appreciate the, the gifts of people who are willing to work, whether it's in a hospice setting or on the oncology wing of a hospital. It's, um, I'm not sure I could do it, to be perfectly honest with you, but I'm, I'm interested in how you started in that area. And then, of course, you're moving on in a, in a scholarly way, right? Yeah. Uh, tell me more. Uh, let's see. We can probably thank the frog in the biology class. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All the way back. All the way back. Um, yeah, it's good to be an orthodontist. I come from a family of dentists, orthodontists. Um, I guess my father was a veterinarian as well. Um, and wow. so that's what got me interested, I think, in um, or anatomy in general, I should say, and um, how people cope around illness. I spent a lot of time in the his OR, you know, holding little kitty, um, doing their little ventilator for them. Mm. And um, I think for me, it was the not being able to communicate about pain sure. and what that was like. Um, and so that and the frog, you know, trying to zap the frog back to life made me realize that I'm more involved, interested in the communication about human experience and grief and loss. So yeah. that kind of got me into the psychology and my social work placement went straight from a psychology degree right into a master's in social work. And I knew that I wanted to work in grief and loss. Um, and so started with a hospice placement and have done it ever since. Oh, my wow. gosh. And, and what do you do to renew yourself? You, you know, the self-care piece of folks who are pouring themselves out on behalf of others under really difficult circumstances. I'm, I'm curious about how you keep your own cup filled, so to speak. Yeah, I probably, they used to joke me when I was in practice that I had more hobbies than anyone they knew. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and sit still, which leads well to bringing into academia, but I knit, I like to spend time with my dog and go for hikes. I used to like to bake a lot, a little more challenging in this um, altitude. Goodness, I've played the violin, just like to try and shut down, do yoga, those kinds of things. And community support is essential in family. Yeah, that's what I was interested in is, is you know, do you have sort of talking partners where you can unburden yourself of some of the challenges, you know, whether it was when you were in the palliative care setting or even now with some of your research questions, which aren't really much easier in many ways, right? Yeah. So, so again, forgive me for per pursuing this line, but I'm, I'm real curious about your own self-care, I guess, yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, it probably is unique maybe from some other types of research. I think all of us have stressors in, in the work that we do. And how we're connected and how we debrief. I think if yeah. I had to run statistics all day, I probably would need a different support <laughs> network. <laughs> right. It's just, you know, what everyone's uh, yeah, passion like is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yes, I have. I think I would find people that were similarly minded to me in practice. I think having that uh, team is essential. My research team, and I've been graced with the most amazing research uh, team since I've been here in terms of students and then also professionals that I have connected with through my PhD program and since I've graduated. Mm -hmm. have I have several sets of teams and we all come about our questions together in different ways, but always know that each other's there to talk about. And day, days are hard. That's kind of one thing we set up as we're designing each study or we're talking to students that are helping us. We anticipate that these may be emotional things that are going to come up. And so we're really clear to stop and pause and really talk about 
how that feels for us. Uh, there's a lot of embodiment sure. in this kind of work. So it's helpful to find people who relate. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting me press that point a little bit. I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, what often keeps us going, of course, are the impact stories. And, and mm-hmm. so I wonder if you, and I'm sure you have many, but if you could pick out one you'd be willing to share in terms of th- th- these are the kind of moments that, you know, sort of keep me going, right? Yeah. I try to be intentional when I design every research project with the human in the end, as probably we all do, right? And so I like to, I think my discussion section, well, the research, sorry, the results and all the quotes are very juicy to me, but the discussion section of all of our work and how that kind of like symbolically applies to life is that what are are the practical implications that I can, um, somebody can read this and see themselves in this or see a family member? Mm-hmm. Or if you are a practitioner, say you're a physician or you're a social worker, or psychologist or a nurse, that you can start with a question like, I, I, I heard somebody experience this or, you know, set, creating an assessment tool is really key that people can take right in and start working with. I think one thing I, I love is bringing art into my work. Mm-hmm. And so okay. I do a photography interventions called Photo Voice with young adults sure. that have mm-hmm. cancer. And it, it's a very disenfranchised population of folks, as you were saying, mm-hmm. Matt, you know, under 40 is a very rare age and it's a developmentally fruitful age typically. Mm-hmm. And so to have life interrupted by cancer is rare and also very isolating. Mm-hmm. And so I... Um, from some of my dissertation work, created a photo voice intervention with my partner, Danielle, uh, research partner, Danielle. And it's an eight-week group where we get young adults together from around the country, and they tell their story through photography and a brief narrative like a coffee shop caption kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Through the course of the eight weeks, people jump in really quickly because there's something about a photograph that speaks, obviously speaks more than words can. And so this group, over the course of the eight weeks, we've ran it several times and just get to see folks feel like they finally, and hear them say, I finally have somebody who understands what my experience is like. Um, Folks that have never had any type of counseling or social work kind of support have said, I get what it means now. I get what a group intervention means now. And so now all of those stigmas or or myths I had in my head about how this can be really scary, it's actually a very comforting thing to reach out to people. And so I loved like seeing, oh, we sparked sparked ways for people to feel like we take away some barriers. It's okay Mm. to ask for help. It's okay to share your worries with somebody else. You're not alone in it. So it's kind of like one that's my favorite, but I can tell you, um, I'm partnering <laughs> with um, this group called Cancer Care. It's mm-hmm. a uh, national organization in New York, um, and they support people going through cancer. They have like a phone line and do lots of free resources. And I reached out to them and said, hey, we just did this study, a pilot we did with CU Anschutz and the Flint Veterinary Center here, uh, Lori Kogan that works um, oh, sure. VMBS, yeah. yeah. She and I and Linda Cook at UC Health, we studied uh, folks going through breast cancer and what how that impacted their relationship with their pets. Mm. And so I reached out to this organization that helped me on a daily basis when I was a clinician and said, hey, we did this work. If we can help any way at all, we're going to film a video that's for them to play on their website for folks that like normalizes or, or helps to universalize the experience of, you know, having cancer and caring for a pet can be really beneficial, but also can be really stressful. And like yeah. how 
how to think about if you had to rehome your pet, mm. you know, what that can be like and give resources for that. So it feels like it gives me the opportunity to go full circle and give back to the folks that gave to me and my patients. So sure. I think for me, that feels like really professionally impactful to know that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people can turn to this video and get help. Yeah, yeah. it's a neat platform, isn't it, to, to amplify the message in many ways. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fun to see. Yeah. One thing that I noticed about your research that I love is the fact that you apply hope in social work. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean to you? What does it mean to be able to give someone hope through the practice of social work and combining all of your previous careers to what you do now? Yeah, that's a great question. I, and it always stumps me. I would be asking folks to define what hope means to them and right. then ask me, I'm like, uh, <laughs> um, what does it mean? Yeah, I guess in, in all the work that we do in our college, probably, there are things, there's an event that happens in someone's life, whether it's a positive thing or a stressful thing that really sets us back and makes us reprioritize or, or take things in perspective. And for me, I find that hope is a force. I um, worked at a Catholic hospital and not raised Catholic and was just really enamored with nuns and their insight into the world. Mm -hmm. um, and a nun told me one time, the most important thing you can do is to listen for hope, that we'll always have a sense of hope. Maybe it's it's not big, but maybe we want a day without pain, or maybe we want a day in Colorado with sunshine if it's snowing. And so hope really, in all the studies and, and the theorizing I've done with it, seems to be a motivating force for each of us. Mm. And so it's really the key, I think, for anyone is listening for the yearning. Mm. Like if you have somebody that seems to be in despair or something is really challenging their life, what is it they're saying? I'm looking forward to, I can't wait for, I miss this. Like little threads of yearning, I think, are really important. And I think it helps us if we have that as a guiding force to keep us going through situations that can be difficult. That's incredible. So, so I want to connect a few things. In that answer, you both pointed to the community that we have here in, in our college, which mm -hmm. we are, are you know, constantly blown away by. It's just oh, yeah. a really neat environment. Uh, and then this idea of sort of threads. And so you've touched a little bit on kind of your educational journey, the undergraduate degree, the master's in social work. And I want to connect the dots a little bit closer on that. Part of, again, what we want to do is is to have somebody out there listening to this go, I can relate to that or, or I, I can do that. I, I can yes. see it now. And so talk to us a little bit about the educational pathway, including hiatuses or, of course, working for, yeah. for periods of time. And then ultimately, of course, how did we manage to get lucky enough to land you as part of our family here in the College of Health and Human Sciences? Yes. So I worked, went, graduated and worked for 20 years in oncology. And I literally... Now, when you say graduated again... At, oh, at MSW. Just, okay. Sorry. Gotcha. Master's in social work. In psychology. psychology. Okay. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I went straight through. And so. we're just out of curiosity. Where did you Yeah. Train? North Carolina State okay. for psychology and the University of Georgia. The University of Texas at Austin is 20 years later. Okay. So yeah, I worked in a worked in hospice, home hospice, general home health care, and then worked at two hospitals. One was a Catholic, uh -huh. um, and one was a uh, essential hospital, which we used to call safety net hospitals. Mm. So all of my career has been working in systems where we treat anyone, regardless of ability to pay or insurance status, uh -huh. which is to me it feels essential sure. in terms of social work and health. I was always always, always had this itch for understanding what hope was. And I didn't know that it was really hope, but I, I would see people come in to visit in my work um, 
And I could see their CAT scans or their CT scans, and they would be all white. And we all knew what all white meant that there were masses there typically. Or I would see their lab report and see, like, how can their their labs be so high? Like, how can they even put one foot in front of the other? And yet they would come in. Oftentimes people would have on bright red lipstick or high heels or, you know, they would have a story about something that was just they, – they seemed like – energy was really high. And I'm like, these seem disparate. What's on the paper or the screen and then what's here? Mm -hmm. And so I was just always this itch to figure out what is the math or the formula or the essence of what this thing is in the middle that's motivating them to appear like they are not what they're their images and their stories telling us on paper. And so I distinctly remember a moment I was at an American Cancer Society survivorship conference and I was sitting in on the session and I don't know, they were talking about uh, surveying caregivers and then doing follow-up interviews. And I'm like, I can do that? Like, <laughs> is that what research is? Like, I would love to do this. I'd like to know, like to know more too. And like, what's the deeper meaning making that folks do around these things? And so really it was on a limb. I was like, I'm going to take the GRE and if I do okay on the GRE and then I'll apply to schools and then applied to schools and I got several acceptances. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go and I'll visit. And I went to UT Austin and I was like, I feel like I finally landed on my planet and these people wow. speak my language. Yeah. And um, they were really into, into professional health education, uh -huh. which for me, I'm really fascinated by the processes of how we learn as a team sure. and how we come across our professions and train. Um, and so that for me was essential in my training. I, the mentor, Barbara Jones, that I found her work, she works in pediatric palliative care and is really um, a leader in health social work across in our discipline and across disciplines. So I really wanted to train through her and also learn how to teach across the interprofessional perspective of health. And so that's what got me there. Um, now I have to interject. Yeah. Again, I think for most listeners, we could trot right past this. It, it surely takes a fair bit of courage to, after 20 years, yeah, say I'm going to go back to school yeah. and pursue a doctoral degree. So I, again, just unpack a little bit of you know what was going on. Yeah. Heart and mind, if you, if yes, you can use yes. that kind of language. Yeah. I am married to someone who's Scottish that has this saying, what's for you won't go by you. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, and so truthfully, that's part of like my thing, like every little step I did. And I think when I was getting my MSW, they said PhD and I applied to some like dual master social work PhD programs and I got in, but I like I couldn't afford it at the time too. So I just put it all out of my mind. But I think what, you know, I can go back to again, another a, a patient that I had in mind um, that was a young adult that was really active that um, was diagnosed with a, a very aggressive brain tumor that required they move to our state to be with family. And um, because of their tumor, they were wandering and doing things at night that made their parents very concerned about their safety and their parents ended up almost like locking them into their own private part of the house. And so they lost their sense of identity. Their medication also made them suffer a lot of pain and headaches and nausea. And so they stopped taking their medication. And to me, I thought, well, they really lost the sense of who they are as a young adult sure. and, and everything, their sense of agency and control and joy in life have been taken away. And so what can we do 
Like maybe that we couldn't have kept them on treatment any longer, but maybe we could have managed their side effects a little bit differently so that they could still do the things that brought them joy. And how can we communicate with the parents to say, you know, hey, maybe like you put an app on their phone where you know where they are, but let them go out and do things and still have the life of, of a young adult. And so I think for me, that was the essence of like, this is the time. Now is the time because I I need the skills, the qualitative research methods. I knew I wanted to do the qualitative part, but I need these skills to be able to ask the right questions, to be able to partner with those going through the experience so that I could elevate their experience and really learn how to speak to the common experience that they have, Mm. to be able to bring that out into the world in ways that folks can take it and interpret it for their lives or for their patients they work with. But it was a big, it was a leap and maybe I was naive and stupid. I think if I'd have known I could have taught as an adjunct, I maybe, (laughs) (laughs) but then I had this huge research bug that I was like, I still, I don't know how I would live without doing it. Good for you. So you you pursue a PhD at UT Austin, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hook them horns, right? You got <laughs> it. <Yeah. laughs> I fear miss not to hook them right now. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, when did you arrive at CSU? So, yeah. So I was applying for jobs, right, as my, in my start of my fourth year, and I was really interested in finding a place that wanted to focus on health, that believed in the whole person, that also had a social justice forward stance in the work that we were doing. I came here for my interview and literally got on the phone and I was like, I found my family again. Um, It feels right at home. And I was just waiting, you know, the long period you have to wait before you find out if you are the lucky one. And so just was super ecstatic to, to be offered the the job to come here and I chomped on it right away. And what year did you start? I started in 2019. So the academic 1920 year was a great year. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, to start and in particularly if one is used to working in healthcare. And so that I think probably was more of a psychological existential adjustment for me than going back to school in general because the world and my friends and those I cared for were in crisis and mm. I couldn't really do much from behind my monitor. Sure. Um, yeah. I couldn't go into a hospital system, but I could interview healthcare social workers about what it's like and elevate their story yep. about. So that's what I did. And that's kind of how I dealt with that existential crisis of not being able to be at the bedside helping out at that in our national crisis time. Yeah. And then I met Lori Kogan and yeah. got the interesting way. Never thought I'd get to blend my, I say my childhood in an animal hospital um, with my interest in grief and loss in human world. And so we started looking at grief and loss among service animal handlers and with their, their service dog retired or died and what that was like. And then that led us into our work in cancer. And so I'm like really grounded in both. We got to make some cool measures that we pulled from cancer world that we applied to um, human-animal interaction, like parenting gout for folks when you're a young adult and have cancer. We turned it into pet parenting gout. Mm. And then we turned a measure of social support um, into how much social support your animal provides you. And like being able to let the one person who will listen or the one being that will listen to me. And so we pivoted and 
pivot. I know it's not a great word on these days, but we really kind of like <laughs> were able to adapt. And right. like you said, and, and be nimble on our feet and looked at that. And it's been a very meaningful friendship and uh, research partnership as well. And, and so that's a springboard for our next question. You're, you're at CSU. You've you've managed to, to navigate the pandemic. Um, and here we are in 2023. And, you know, I, again, I'm reluctant to use the term get back to normal, but we're moving on. We're right, moving ahead, right? right? And, mm-hmm. So talk to us about your team, and, and Lori's clearly a big part of this. Yeah. But, but other things you're working on, you know, and again, student trainees, collaborations, you yeah. mentioned dance shoots, et cetera. Or what are you doing now? It's kind what of am I doing now? Um, yeah. Um, so Lori and I received a grant from the Human Animal Bond Research Institute. Uh-huh. So it's um internationally focused group so we were like one of four super stoked about that so we're able to take our which is neat our cu csu pilot work with the data that we had to be able to to apply for this international grant so now we're going to study not just those that have breast cancer but anyone that has cancer and probably focusing on the four four main types of cancer and what that is like for folks with their pet and how that relationship can change um and so we'll do surveys and also focus groups um to find out what could your veterinarian or your medical provider do to help because your veterinarian is not going to ask you about your cancer and your oncologist is not going to ask you about your pet. Right. So building communication guides, how to build your care team. So that's our next step. Great. Um, I also am working um, with the Denver Zoo. Great. Oh, okay. Well, um, so, you get to hang out with the big critters? I haven't gotten to go yet. <laughs> right. Seriously, I need to. Um, maybe this will be my free <laughs> ticket, maybe, yeah. um, for access entrance. Um, but one of the things, like today, um, I was meeting with a researcher, social science researcher at the Denver Zoo. They have social workers and other social scientists that are part of their research team. So, Here's another way that social work is growing Mm -hmm. in clinical practice, but also in research. And so we're studying the grief of the um, zookeepers and also the volunteers and other zoo staff, because thinking maybe like they've had an elephant there for 20 years and the size and and bond that we have, uh, that they have with those animals and how that impacts them. It's nothing we've ever in our country or uh, that we've been able to find anywhere, any research about what that type of disenfranchised grief and loss looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a project we're getting ready to analyze the qualitative data about how their managers and folks can better support them through their loss, really learning what happened with them when a significant loss happened. So maybe it's a tiger or a panda, what that loss looks like to sure. them and yeah. how they coped and who the people were and what resources. So see what kind of how they strategically manage that or didn't and what their unmet needs are. And then really to inform the Denver Zoo. And we've had 1,800 people respond across the country from different zoos. Wow. So obviously there's somebody that wants to tell their story. Right. There's a need here. Yeah. And not surprisingly, again, it's it's something easy to walk past and not even think about. But when you stop and reflect for a minute, you think, why? 
why haven't we? Right. Yeah. Right, in many ways. Yeah. Lori is always good at thinking about the, I call them our silver, our shiny pennies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, what penny are we looking at today? And then I also work with a team of folks and my student team. We look at medical aid in dying, hmm. um, which is a legal medical option in 10 states in the District of Columbia and how folks prepare for using this medication at end of life and then the bereavement experiences kind of pre-loss and after death for their loved ones. Yeah, wow, gosh. You continue to pursue challenging areas for sure. An unfunded challenging area. (laughs) Yeah, which makes it even more challenging, doesn't it? My gosh. You are a trailblazer. And I hope you know that (laughs) because when I look through your CV, I see first of its kind over and over again. And so another one that comes to mind is the pet services. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about that, the the services finder, the map that oh, allows right. individuals to connect with other folks to get resources for their for their pets when they're experiencing awful life events. Yeah. So we kind of had the idea like, so we know you have cancer, we know you need a team, but like you're going to be tired, you're going to be financially limited or socially limited and the people that can help you. Mm -hmm. So what about if we make an interactive map where we can, you can pen wherever you are and you can figure out from our surveys, we figured out what kind of resources people need to help support them and their pet during treatment. Um, So yeah, we had amazing, two amazing student GRAs, Amanda and Savannah, that went to well, Amanda went to dog parks from here to Denver and and, mm-hmm. and interviewed all the folks about, like, who would you call if you needed help and who's helped you in the past, like if you broke a hip or things like that. Um, and they called over 900 local organizations to wow. see if they would want to be in this database. And so they also helped kind of thematize it as to, like, free or low-cost vaccinations, pet transportation services, mm. sitters, things like that. So folks can just go on and one click or two, just create their team and know who's out there and willing to support them. Good so, Lord. So great. So, that is phenomenal. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. It's kind of fun. So that's what got me connected to cancer care and said, hey, we're doing this. So they're trying to build something similar across the country. Wow. Wow. My goodness. Miles to go, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. As you reflect, how does it feel to be a part of something like that. Everyone always says, I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. And you're a living testament to that. So how does that feel? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody said that I was cool the other day and I'm like, you are. can we look at your definition of what cool is? <laughs> you I'm really are. Either way to find this. Now, who, who said it, if you don't mind? Was it a student? A student, yeah. Uh, yeah. So again, that's extra special in yes. some ways, right? Yes, because right. we think of this age gap and we think I'm the last person you're going to think it's cool. Cool, right. right. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I guess Abraham is a super humble person. So for me, it's just like, for me, it's the meaning making of the process Mm. of getting to do it and to be able to open doors and opportunities for folks to feel heard and feel seen. Um, So I think for me at the bottom of the end of the day, if I were to have a tombstone and be like, she heard me, um, I don't know. That's beautiful. That ties into the name of your lab too. If we think about serious illness and end of life narratives, we think about the narrative portion that can almost be multifaceted. So mm-hmm. it's hearing the narratives from others, but also being able to tell their story. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about that. And even beyond the work, just the name right. of your lab and, and the meaning of it. Right. 
So it was really hard to come up with a name, but I think me and the members of the lab, are my my team and, and research students, and mm-hmm. uh, Kem, who's a thanatologist that works with me on medical aid and dying. Mm. Thanatologists, sorry, are folks that are death education experts right. and really support people in understanding grief and loss. So like, what are we, we are drawn to the story. The story is the work. And I think as a social worker, and many human beings obviously are drawn to the story. Um, and so for me, I feel like I am the medium hmm. for to be able to to elevate or to broadcast people's messages. So it is what gives me meaning to, to sit with story and just makes the work joyful for me. I think when I do and code all of my interview data, I have a special code. I don't know if everyone has this, but the code is like response to the interview process and what it feels like to participate. And it always has some type of relationship to gratitude or Mm. uh, somebody I was working with um, that has a Parkinson's disease and is preparing for their medical aid and dying um, day of their death and the process of what that would look like. They happen to be a social worker and they said to me and Kim on our interview that they feel like this interview was almost like therapy for them and the process is that they got to give back to others and wow. find some meaning in yeah. the process of their death. Uh-huh. Um, they didn't want to die, but they knew their body had a, a different plan. But to be able to share their story and to maybe impact law or to change the way that somebody can see their own death and sure. to have it maybe have some potential or possibility that that for them was so meaningful. And I'm like, this is why I do the work. I'm just here asking yeah, the questions. Like, uh, oh, goodness. Yeah. That's, That's so powerful. So, so we're on this really cool train of, of thought and I want you to project five, 10 years in, into the future and, and talk about, you know, legacy and impact that you hope your work will have. And of course, your work is far from accomplished yet, but but cast your vision, you know, on down the road a bit and, and, and talk to us about legacy and, and impact for right. Jen's work. Jen's work. I don't know. I guess just many, many stories out there um, that I hope I can tell. I, if I could like wave my magic wand, I would like there to be health systems where we communicated better. I think we focus in health on present moment and future moment, but we neglect to think about the person that comes into the situation before they have a health crisis. Mm-hmm. And so I found in my studies of hope, that's what's really important is being able to integrate the salient or most important aspects of life and their identity before with who they are now in this kind of encumbered body or encumbered mind. Um, so I would like to see our health systems move to where we ask folks about what is, what is important to you? What brings your life joy? Um, what were things that you were looking forward to before you became ill and how can we help you to achieve those or, or thinking how we reframe the process of something in smaller bites so that you can get towards or have that same feeling of what you wanted to have in your life, that your life may be shortened, but what can we do to bring value to that shortened time? Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd like to magically change all the how health systems work. I'd also like to end my photo voice intervention. Received a career scholar award re- like in the last two weeks that I can't talk about yet because who it is. Yeah. But um, get to carry my intervention um, to train social workers across the country and mental health providers how to support young adults through this photo voice intervention so that we can elevate 
the young adults' photos of what's important to them and their narratives. From there, I'm hoping to move into supporting folks that have cystic fibrosis or other congenital heart conditions that we don't talk about as much in society. I want to be able to support them and finding ways to adapt to their illness or through their illness, but also for society to know how we can better communicate and support folks. I'm just drawn into the work. It gives me energy. It's able to touch, to be present and be touched by somebody who's at a point in their life that's potentially the most difficult point in their life and to share that with me and to allow me to listen and to witness and to be a part of their journey. It feels precious and something that I will always hold close. Well, thank you for being willing to do it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And thank you for not allowing a 20-year professional and, and rich opportunity to get in the way of pursuing a PhD and coming to join us. We're thankful that you're here. Thank you. It's never too late if you're listening. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for having me. And that's the show. Thank you for listening to another episode of Health and Human Science Matters. If you want to learn more about our College of Health and Human Sciences, go to www chhs.colostate.edu. And if you haven't already, add Health and Human Science Matters to your library of podcasts, give us a rating, and leave a review.